Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. Here on this podcast, we talk about the building blocks and the micro habits that help us create real and lasting influence. What do I mean by that? Well, we're talking about the kind of influence that helps you achieve your goals and whatever it is in life that you want to accomplish. But perhaps most importantly, it's the type of influence that helps you create real impact and that enables you to truly thrive. Hey friend, welcome to episode 283 of She Said, She Said podcast. This episode is the fourth in our latest collaboration series with the Southern Sea, and you are about to be transported into the pink paradise that is the Colony Hotel of Palm Beach. More to the point, you are about to enter the world of the hotel's visionary CEO and co-owner, Sarah Wettenhall. Now, if the colony is new to you, trust me on this, there is no place quite like it. It is a true feast for the senses that blends the unique history and aesthetic of Palm Beach way back from the hotel's origins in 1947, but balances those against entirely modern conveniences, elements that honor the hotel's tradition while at the same time achieving a really modern and timeless experience. It's very hip and vintage all at the same time. Now, this award-winning achievement is the product of Sarah Wettenhall's tremendous vision and insight into brand and the customer experience, but also in the way that she has selected partners who have helped her bring this vision to life. But Sarah's path to the colony is not necessarily a traditional one, nor is it one that you might expect. So how did this former fashion PR exec who trained at Calvin Klein and Dolce & Gabbana, among others, and who took almost a decade-long break to raise her three kids, how did she create this masterpiece? Stay tuned, friend. There is much to love in this episode, and there is much to learn from Sarah, especially about creating a unique brand experience. Enjoy. Sarah, welcome to She Said, She Said. It's so good to be with you today. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. As I told you during the Southern Sea, and of course, this is part of our third annual collaboration series that we do with She Said, She Said podcast and the Southern Sea. Um, when I saw you at the Southern Sea, I think I mentioned my daughter and I took our very first mother-daughter trip to the colony last spring break. Well, it warms my heart to hear that because that is one of our core brand tenets, to be a multi-generational place where people of all different backgrounds, ages can come together and have fun, be fulfilled, and really find joy in our pink paradise. And um, a big piece of the Palm Beach story is multi-generational. So to hear that you brought your daughter, um, that, that really warms my heart personally. Yeah, we absolutely loved it and just found everything about it to be really inspiring. Um, and it, it kind of lights you up, frankly. I mean, it's this beautiful, truly pink paradise as, as you describe it. Sarah, I would love to jump into your story a bit because as I have read a bit more about you and I've heard you speak about this, 
becoming a world famous hotelier was not on your list of things when you were in college. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about how this happened and where you got your start. I often say she, the colony is female. We refer to her as a female, that she picked me. Um, I, I didn't really pick her. Um, you know, and as, as many things in, in life often are, um, it happened by accident, uh, or I wonder if it was a greater design larger than me, um, but it happened by accident. I, um, I'm a Midwesterner is where I grew up. I moved around a lot, but my roots are in the Midwest. Um, I'm an only child and we bounced around a lot for my dad's job. And I ended up going to college in Nashville at Vanderbilt university. And that's where I went my husband, um, And so after studying at Vanderbilt, elementary education, oddly enough, with a double major in special education, I moved to New York because I quickly learned that although I loved children and I loved teaching after my student teaching, I didn't actually want to teach. Um, I always had a love for fashion, a love for style, a love for design, although I wouldn't have really described myself as a creative per se, back in those days, I would have just said, I'm a a girl that really loves fashion. Um, I realized I wanted to move to New York and get a start in the fashion industry. So I did that. Um, I was young and hungry and so hungry that I didn't even walk at graduation. I got in my car and drove to New York because frankly, I I was living on borrowed time. I had a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time to find a job. And I was like, okay, let's go do this. We're going to do it. So, um, you know, dove straight into New York and ended up getting a job as an assistant in the PR department at Calvin Klein. And that was the beginning of a decade and a half long career in the PR marketing and advertising side of the fashion Mm -hmm. space. Um, I worked for Calvin for a bunch of years. I worked for Dolce and Gabbana. Um, and in retrospect, like those, those two fashion powerhouses were the training ground that really taught me a lot of what I, I do today. And they set that foundation. Again, I like obviously would not have known it at the time because I was 20 something at that point in time and just kind of getting through my days. Um, but those re- those experiences and, and working for brands like that really set the foundation for, for what we've built at the colony. And then after that, I moved over to the agency side um, because I wanted to learn strategy. I wanted to learn how to pitch. I wanted to still stay in the fashion, fashion and luxury business, um, you know, but, but to do it on the client side and not in-house. And so I did that for a number of years. Can you can you go back um, bef- before you complete the story and maybe go back to you said something really interesting that what you learned in these fashion houses was really foundational for ultimately running the colony, and and I, I think folks would maybe find that a little curious. Tell me how and and why that was the case. So it's fascinating. I mean, this was the this was the late nineties um, at Calvin Klein in particular, also Dolce and Gabbana, but I was at Calvin first and. The sense of brand was so strong in those days um, at these houses, at you know the Calvin Kleins and the Donna Karens and the Ralph Laurens and and these these, these places, and I think it still is in particular Ralph Lauren. But um, but my experience at Calvin, you know, the sense of brand was so strong and so consistent. Um, you know, Calvin was the head designer at that point in time. It was before he had sold the business. He came in every day. 
was very hands-on and, uh, and he touched everything, hmm. soup to nuts, everything, you know, from the orchid that was in the lobby to the way that we all dressed, we all had to wear all black. Like there, there was no room for a personal interpretation. You had to have stick straight hair, red lipstick, all black clothes. I mean, down to the paper clips and the pens on your desk. You were only allowed to write in black ink. There were special rubber colored paper clips that were covered in black rubber. All your paper clips were black. Every, your entire experience was prescribed from the minute you walked through the headquarters to the minute you left. And like what was always fascinating to me, I mean, I'm a details person. I am, um, like I said, I've always been kind of design and fashion driven. Um, but even at headquarters where, you know, you weren't in the boutique, you weren't shopping, you know, you, you weren't a VIP, this is headquarters. So this is corporate. Your entire experience was prescribed from the minute you walk in to the minute you left. Mm. And it was, it was curated in an incredibly beautiful way. And it was that sort of living and breathing that on a daily basis that taught me what I know today and what I've enacted at the colony about details mattering, about about how, you know, the way it experience is all the senses. It's how it smells. It's how it looks. It's how it sounds. It's the way that you talk to people as well as the words that are said. Um, it, it is a complete sensory immersion. And I live that every day at Calvin Klein. Um, and so that really, I think, set the foundation for for what we try to bring to life at the colony every day. And then going from there to Dolce & Gabbana, which was like kind of schizophrenic in a lot of ways because <laughs> Calvin is, was so like ultimately minimal, 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 minimal. And then Dolce is this like Italian, more is more. And like, why have just cheetah when you could have leopard and cheetah and zebra and majolica and color and like it it was you know it was kind of a crazy transition but you know but again it hammered home that message in a really um palpable and salient fashion that like a good a good brand is is not i mean it's about it's about a taste level yes but it's really about this consistency of message and about again you know getting to that message from all different angles and really taking the message from the top all the way down to the details. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we used to have in in the Dolce offices, even the housekeepers, um, you know, who would come through and empty the garbage and and clean the bathrooms, even they were in a prescribed uniform. And again, this is a corporate headquarters. This is not a retail store, you know, like even the kitchen in the Dolce and Guana headquarters in New York served Italian espresso and Italian biscotti. And so if you came up, you know, as a buyer from a store for a buying appointment, you received a proper Italian espresso and biscotti. And, you know, it, it, it was, again, it was a brand experience. Yeah. And um, it was that level of detail and of nuance and consistency, um, you know, that, that I was trained in in my 20s and early 30s. Yeah. How do you, how do you uh, kind of make sense or, I mean, then this is going to be, I, I will admittedly say, probably a very naive question. But one of the things that strikes me when I hear you talk about that and that that really rigid adherence to brand consistency, where does the creativity come in? You know, we, we talk about, you know, dopamine dressing or getting, you know, creative inputs from all these other places. Maybe talk about how, you know, in your experience at Calvin and also at Dolce, sort of how you learned to think about creativity within fairly rigid confines of a brand. It's interesting because, 
you know, like I said earlier, I would not have thought myself a creative person mm -hmm. because in those days, I, I, it wasn't about my creativity. It was about me enacting at Dolce's, you know, Domenico and Stefano's creativity or at Calvin Calvin, Mr. Klein's creativity onto the world or onto whatever my project was. It wasn't about me, I, my creativity. And I think that's actually why for so many years, I didn't think I was a creative person. Mm, interesting. Because I almost like I, I subverted my own creativity for these, these brands. Cause I was, I was a mouthpiece. I was a vehicle. It wasn't about, you know, my creativity per se. Yes. It was about my brainstorming and my ability to do the job, but it wasn't about, you know, me styling a look or me putting something together. It was about me, me messaging mm -hmm. their creativity out to the world. And so, you know, it, it's fascinating, you know, when you think about it that way and wonder, okay, you know, where did my creativity come from or how, you know, how, how did I, you know, somehow make up in my crazy brain, this, this wonderful pink paradise. And that frankly, for me came from years of being a guest at the colony yeah. and decades of going to Palm beach and being a member of that community and loving a town so much. Um, but, and frankly, staying at the colony as a, a guest, which we can get into mm -hmm. that story mm -hmm. at, at some point, but I stayed there for, for, for decades as a, as a guest and frankly, didn't feel like my needs were being served. Like I longed for a hotel that offered me all these other things that the colony didn't offer at that point in time. And it, it was that kind of pent up demand, so to speak, and love of Palm Beach and feeling like there's not a place that epitomizes the soul of Palm Beach. And that's where my creativity came. And then I, you know, I unleashed that on the colony using the years of experience building brands and was like, okay, now I know what to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like I, I, I know the playbook, the playbook is set. I know what the market needs. I know what I would want as a guest. And so let's do it. I mean, that's where the creativity came from. Um, so and it's why I feel like I'm, you know, in, in my forties now, um, I'm like an awakened creative. Whereas if you, like, if you had asked me this, if we had spoken in my twenties and thirties, I would, Oh, I'm not, I'm not a creative person. I'm not, this is not about me. And I'm a mouthpiece for these brands. And so it's been an interesting evolution, um, to now acknowledge, you know, as a mature adult, I, I, I am a creative hundred yeah. percent. You absolutely are. I mean, I don't think there's anyone who would argue with that. Okay. That is absolutely fascinating. So I want to, um, I want to kind of spring forward. You worked in fashion for all of these years. Um, at some point you, uh, well, so you, you had already met your husband. I'm not sure when you got married, but you had three children and you ultimately took, took a break from your career. Maybe let's, let's, let's talk through that and kind of the transition and the big pivot that you made, um, to taking a break and then to deciding you and Andrew deciding to buy the colony. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so Andrew and I met in college uh, we dated for a number of years and married in our late 20s uh, when I was working for the PR agency for a number of years. And um, we got pregnant with our first child, who is now 14, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and at that point, decided to take a bit of a break. Um, you know, I, I worked in an industry that I wouldn't say it's not family friendly, but it's not necessarily easy on families. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, this was. 14 years ago. Um, and so the, the, the thought of working remotely and, you know, and having fluidity in one's workplace was not a thing then. Right. Um, you know, I, I worked in a job that was very much, 
not even nine to five. It was nine to seven, eight, nine, ten. whenever you finished your work. Um, and there was a lot of European travel. And my husband at that, and still is, but at that point in time, um, was an investment banker on Wall Street who also traveled a lot for his job. And, um, you know, we kind of, as we were very excited to welcome our son, but looked at each other and I was like, I just didn't see how this is going to work. Um, I just don't see it. So I took a break, um, as many families often do, and had three children. Um, they are now, as I said, 14, and then I have 12, and I have very soon to be nine. I cannot call her eight anymore because she gets very upset she's very soon to be nine. <laughs> and spent, um, you know, what, what was at that point in time, you know, seven-ish years, eight-ish years, nine-ish years, mm-hmm. Um, at home with them, wow. raising them, which was great. And I always knew that I would, I would go back, um, you know, and Andrew and I would brainstorm and talk about what that would look like and what did I want to do. And, um, you know, I spent an interesting number of years out of the workforce because those were also the formative years of social media. Mm. And those were a, a very serious number of years where my the job that I knew it, kind of that PR marketing and advertising job significantly changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I took a step back, you know, print media was king, right. you know, I, I mean, it was, you know, all about ad dollars and brands and, you know, these, these big box magazines and in, you know, less than a decade, the world significantly changed. Social media existed before, but it wasn't what it is today. Right. Um, the world of influencers and, and this this whole again the whole industry significantly shift shifted while um, I was at home with the children and so as we would brainstorm like what what would I like to do you know at one point I, it, it kind of came to me in a hard and fast that I I don't think that I could do my job anymore even mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because the world so significantly changed mm-hmm. and I was quote unquote out of the game mm-hmm. at that point in time and it was awkward that you know I had become senior enough that, you know, learning something new seemed really foreign to me. Um, it, it was, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of an odd thing, you know, l- you know, learning about social media and trying to be expertized in something that literally had evolved while I was out of the workforce. Right. Like, h- how could I even come in in a senior position, not, not having that knowledge base? Yeah. Because you um, literally almost have to start from the beginning again, in, in terms of learning it, that. And so that is, that is it, in and of exactly. itself fairly intimidating, I would think. It was, it was a very kind of odd thing. And so whenever we would talk about it, you know, it would just, the kind of the conversation would go nowhere. And I'd be like, I just don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, you know, we, we'd still, when the conversations really started, we had had two, we had not, I was pregnant with Maggie, our third, and was starting to think about like, okay, you know, when she's of a certain age in the next few years, maybe I'll go back, but I don't know, again, all of this, you know, and the same sort of conversations also erupted because again, this is still a pre-COVID world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I'm not going to go back and like have to do like FaceTime and, 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 you know, like in an office and working, you know, nine to again, nine to seven, nine to eight, nine to nine, where I have to like put in a certain number of hours like that, that doesn't fit with the family life. So we were still kind of at loggerheads, just trying to figure out what it would be I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the conversations evolved, evolved, stalled, you know how they often do, yeah. you know, you just it's kind of a continued thing. So we had Maggie, the third. Um and when she was one, my father-in-law called, um, who used to own the colony. Um, he bought the colony in 1969. He um, 
you know, he was what we would probably call today a venture capitalist. Mm -hmm. But at that point in time, you know, there was like, you didn't call it VC then, you know, he, he and his business partner invested in businesses and bought things that interested them and revitalized them and ran them when it suited them and sold them when it didn't. And, you know, and he had a pretty interesting life. Um, and so he owned and ran the colony from 1969 through to the late eighties, um, and loved it and kept his apartment there in the penthouse, even after he wasn't the controlling partner, he lived there. Wow. Um, so that's closing that loop as to how I've been in Palm beach for so many years and had been going to the colony for so many years is that was home yeah. for my father-in-law. Um, and so fast forward, he called us and was like, you know, Hey guys, um, the family that bought the colony from me all those years ago is ready to sell it. And they offered it to me. He was 82 at that point in time. And he's like, I'm not doing this, but you guys need to do it. Um, he's like the happiest years of my life were the years that I ran this hotel and you've got to find a way to do this. This will change the trajectory of your life. This will change your family's life in untold ways. You've got to make this happen. And so at this point we had a one-year-old, um, you know, you'll love it. You know what you don't know. We were also renovating our apartment in New York city and living in temporary housing and doing all these crazy things that like like all signs pointed to no. Like, so, so Sarah, can, can you remember back to that very moment when he called and what your reaction was in that moment? Were you like, you've got to be out of your mind or were you like, I was sitting on the floor of our, cause we were living in temporary housing. It was actually his apartment in New York, my father-in-law's apartment in New York, which he never went to this two bedroom, tiny apartment that didn't even have a real kitchen and it had like a hot plate and a, and a toaster oven. <laughs> With three small children. <laughs> three small children, a dog, and all this craziness. The living room was so small. There were, wasn't enough seating for the whole oh, family God. on the sofa. I'm sitting on the floor. <laughs> like with my one-year-old. Oh. As chaos is ensuing around me. And, and, and I, I picture it so vividly. And I was like literally a 50 50 torn between what the heck this is insanity we there's no way we can do this and oh my gosh this is a dream come true interesting and and, you know and a dream come true because as i said you know we had spent years going to the colony and years sitting by the pool being like wow this place could be so great if dot 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 if only dot 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 wow why don't they whatever it is, do this. Why don't they do that? So there were so many years of these pent up hopes and dreams that when we got that call, it it was like, there's no way we can do this. This is lunacy. And then, oh my gosh, this is also something that we had almost dared to never dream of. Like we we didn't think it would ever be a possibility, but wow, we we have to make this happen. You know, which is crazy because I, I knew nothing about hospitality. My husband knew nothing about hospitality. Um, like I said before, he's in finance and still is. Um, and my background obviously was in the fashion industry. So like in no way were we suited to buy this hotel and to run this hotel. Um, but we looked at each other and we like, we've got to do this. We've got to give it a try. So where did you start, Sarah? You, you made the decision to buy. And then what did you do next? So we went through, it was a quick six months of due diligence because it, you know it, it wasn't an insider deal necessarily, but it kind of was because it was my father-in-law's former business sure. partner. So, you know, it, it was a really quick due diligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first thing I did was hire a consultant. 
I, you know, I called literally everyone I knew that was even hospitality adjacent. Like you own a coffee shop. You like to drink coffee. You like to stay in hotels. Great. I'm calling you. Literally everyone that I knew that was even quasi related to the industry. Um, you know, my husband went at his investment bank down to the, the group that covers hospitality and was like, okay, my wife and I are doing this crazy thing. Like we, we need contacts. And, you know, I was flooded with, you know, with, with friends of friends and, you know, again, six degree of separation relationships. And I just got on the phone. I took, I took a co-working space down the street so I could not sit on the floor of this tiny apartment living room and just got on the phone and started talking to people and networking and calling and asking questions and was like, listen, like the only thing we've got going for us is that we don't, we know that we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 you know, we are not under any delusions that we know what we're doing. We know we don't know anything, but we do know Palm Beach. Mm-hmm. Like we know Palm Beach and we know that this hotel is not reaching its potential. We knew that the asset had been mismanaged and we knew that there was upside. Could we pinpoint like what, what it was and what exactly was broken? No, had no clue. This was largely a wing and a prayer, but we started calling and calling and calling. And I just started meeting with people, as I said, and I ended up getting introduced to this consultant. Um, Susan Ritchie is her name and she's absolutely fabulous. She was the first female hotel GM in Manhattan. Interesting. In her days of running hotels. Um, and she parlayed her career into a consultancy now in her retirement years. And I I couldn't even begin to tell you who introduced me to her in retrospect all these years later. Um, but she's living, she lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. And she got on the train and came in and met with me and we sat down and I was like, okay, she's my girl. Mm. Like she takes on one project at a time and she dives deep and she's tough and scrappy and smart. And she would probably say she's not a creative, but she's totally a creative. <laughs> and, and you know, she agreed to take me on and teach me. And Susan taught me pretty much everything I know about the industry today. Wow. She was with us for the first three years of our ownership up until right around the COVID time. And she took us through due diligence. I got her midway through due diligence. Um, and so she took us through the end of due diligence, closing, and then, um, and then on from there. Mm-hmm. And it was about finding, you know, I used to joke that she's the little birdie on my shoulder that like, as I would learn the industry, I would, I would think that I'd get it right, or I'd have an inkling. And then I'd call Susan and be like, okay, so like, I see this in the restaurant and I think it means that, am I right? And she's like, oh, totally right. It does. (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) But, but, you know, she was my, you know, I joked that I like could have gone to Cornell hospitality school or I could just hire Susan. So... (laughs) Okay, so let's let's jump forward a bit. And there, there, there's a number of different layers to taking on this very significant sort of career and life pivot. Um, one of them, I mean, in addition to learning how to run and manage a hotel, but also renovating it, rebuilding it, rebranding it in a way that was a you know significant nod to its history, to this sort of iconic. Um, structure that had that had been there since 1947, but also 
nodding to the timelessness. And you mentioned the multi-generational appeal. That's a really hard thing to achieve. Let's talk a little bit and dive into the creative part of this project, which is not an insignificant undertaking and kind of how you thought about that. It's not at all. And it's funny because, you know, diving into the operational stuff with Susan is what we did first. Obviously, we needed to attack trying to fix the business. But in doing that, it hammered home to me what potential we had on this creative side and that we really needed to establish a firm brand and to establish a position in the marketplace. Because again, as we were fixing the business side of it, it was like, okay, you know, there's, there's tons of upside. There's so much to be done here. And that really, again, it just solidified, wow, there's so much opportunity. And so that, you know, working, you know, I always say I, I kind of had two jobs in those early days because the early days I would do the ops stuff during the day. And then, you know, at night and on my free time, which is non-existent, right. as we all know, as entrepreneurs, <laughs> free time. But in my free time, I would start trying to articulate this brand trying to articulate what we wanted the colony to be because, you know, as we were evolving the operation and kind of repairing the operation, you know, you'd get faced with these questions. Well, should we do A or should we do B? And like, not all of these questions had a straightforward answer, meaning like, yes, A and B would both be good for the business, but like, you know, do you want, you know, when you check in someone, are you going to check them in behind a front desk? Or do you want to have somebody get up around the desk and stand up and go meet him at the front door? Like you get these questions and it's like, but wait, you know, neither are wrong for the business. Both could be great, but we need a, we need a brand. Like we we need a document that's going to help guide these decisions because again, they were coming up on a daily basis and it was just impossible to answer each one and to know which was the right answer and where did we want to go? And it struck me that we, we needed a mission statement and that we needed, we needed a document that articulated who we are and who we wanted to be and what this kind of, what the town even deserved as a hotel. Um, and it was that sort of document that, that I, I followed at Calvin Klein for all those years that I followed at Dolce & Gabbana for all those years. And we needed to articulate that because that would then serve as the cipher to answer all of these questions that we were being pounded with on a daily basis. Like, what do you want your new website to right. look like? Well, heck if I know, like better than the, better than the present <laughs> one. Right. Like, like, it's a low bar. <laughs> it's exactly. Yeah, like I want you to be able to book a room online, which you couldn't currently do when we bought the, the colony. So like, but again, there's all these creative questions and all these, you know, and again, they're operational, but they're not operational and they're coming at you from right and left. And so it became really obvious that like, while we did need to fix the business, we, what we really needed to do is, is create a brand and to fix this yeah. brand. Um, and so, like I said, I, I started just trying to kind of, I always say word vomited out on paper and I just started typing and started writing. And it, um, it came from all of these pent up years that Andrew and I would stay there and, you know, here we are at this hotel that was steps from the ocean and steps from North Avenue, but it had no connectivity to the uh-huh. beach. You know, I would, I would go to the concierge when I was a guest all those years ago and say, Oh, you know, we'd like to go to the beach, you know, are there beach chairs or can you give us a beach shop? Oh no, we don't do that here. <laughs> like, but like I, I can see right. the ocean, like really, 
oh, well, you can go to this other store down the street and you could buy a lounge chair and you could buy a beach towel, but we don't let our towels go to the beach. Oh, okay. So, you know, like there was a lot of things like that, that these pent up years of like, wow, if we ever owned this or if we could only. So a lot of that was the easy part to articulate. Um, I think the more challenging part to articulate was something that my father-in-law had always said that, you know, when he owned this hotel in the 60s and 70s, that it was the center of the community, that it was the locals hotel, that, you know, there was a phrase, it's not a Friday or Saturday night if you don't begin it or end it at Mm. the colony. He also used to always describe it as a bar with rooms attached. (laughs) That that the bar scene and the restaurant scene and, and the liveliness of the ground floor of the colony was often what people came for. They didn't come for the rooms. You know, in those days, they didn't even they didn't have air conditioning. There was no AC. You know, it wasn't about the decor. It was about a really good bar scene and hanging out by the pool. Um, and, and so, you know, that was the more challenging part was taking those pearls from my father-in-law about how it used to be and, you know, and seeing what it had become, which was sleepy and somewhat irrelevant to the community. I mean, a lot of people, when we first bought it, I'd up, up in New York where I live would be like, oh, I hear you bought a hotel. Oh, yeah. What'd you buy? Oh, I bought the colony. Oh, never heard of it. Um, and so it, it's just, you know, it, it was funny. It was like, well, you know, how do we how do we take what it used to be? How do we take and distill the community's hotel, Palm Beach's hotel, and, and bring it back to the forefront of yeah. the community and bring it, bring it back as, as a cornerstone? Um, and so, you know, it, it was really trying to hybridize all the things that we wanted as a guest together with what we knew it used to be. And then the third kind of leg of that stool was, was Palm beach itself. Mm. How do you take a town that um, can often be tricky for outsiders? It can often be kind of a closed community, you know, private clubs, Mm -hmm. high hedges, all of these things. How do you, um, how do you run a business that fundamentally welcomes outsiders? Like well, our whole job as a hotel is to bring visitors into this town. How do you do that in a way that makes the visitors feel incredibly welcome and helps give them, it lowers the veil of Palm Beach mistake. How do you do that in a way that makes them feel like they're insidery and they get what Palm Beach is all about? Um, and so those were kind of the three things that we really focused on as I was writing this mission statement and kind of, trying to articulate what what we wanted the brand to be and what what did we want the experience to be like. Um, that's what we that's what we yeah. found it, you know, found it. Yeah. Uh, it's so fascinating. Do you have any specific advice for someone who's taking on something like that in terms of where do you start as you think about both your mission statement and then ultimately the values that underpin it? You know, I I, I think you have to look back to look forward. You know, I'm a student of history, always been a history geek. Um, I'm a preservationist at heart, um, but I am a preservationist in a way that it has to stay relevant for the future. You can't preserve something just to preserve it, you know, under glass, tucked away. It has to be vital and alive. And so I would say, you know, as if you are looking, whether it be to start a new business or to revitalizing an existing business or existing brand, you've got to look back. And if you're starting a new business, even if there is no history, look at a parallel industry or an ancillary industry or 
or a business that's similar in a town that's similar to yours and look back and use those roots to draw parallels because that's really you know where we've found foundation is trying to say what was it like in the you know in the past and then how do how do we evolve that and transform it to make it relevant for the future you know and a great way to look at that is you know this this hotel has always had a history of music music and live music you know in the in the big band days there was a five piece band and dancing in the middle of the restaurant obviously those days have passed and then in the 80s and 90s there was a cabaret space where we have retail now a literally a, a dinner a dinner theater cabaret and then that waned and so now what do we do we have a dj by the pool so you know we honor that past by looking back and say what worked you know what made a lot of sense okay we're not going to obviously have a five piece orchestra and dancing in the middle of our restaurant that right. doesn't make sense for today but a really cool DJ with like a saxophone accompaniment walking around, that totally makes sense for today. And people are going to love that. So, you know, that's when we talk about honoring the past, but making it relevant. Um, you know, that's an example of, of what that looks like for us. You know, there used to be these fashion shows that would happen around the swimming pool and boutiques would come down from New York and they would set up at the Everglades Club and, and do these beautiful trunk shows. And then they would host luncheons at the colony. And at one point, they even, there's a famous Slim Aaron's photo of where they put an arched bridge over the swimming pool and ladies would walk around and do fashion shows. Well, you know, that's not necessarily viable on a day to day <laughs> basis anymore. But what can we do? We yeah. can host our own trunk shows and we can have our own retail boutique and we can invite Dolce & Gabbana to come and open with us. And so there's ways that we can tap into those fashion roots and have it be an experience that our guest um, can consume in, in a reasonable fashion, but also be tied yeah. into the history. Yeah. Of I absolutely love that. Okay. You talked about the consultant that you hired um, when you when you first bought the colony and started out on this project, but we haven't talked about some of your other creative partners like De Gournay and Aaron Lauder and um, so, so many others. I, I, I won't even begin to name them all because you had so many, but those were a couple that really spring to mind. Maybe talk about how you went about that process of picking those creative, more, more creative, traditionally creative partners. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, you know, we, you know, after we got the business stabilized, um, and we found a GM, Mr. Bruce Siegel, who helps run the business on a day-to-day -day basis, we brought him in-house um, and we really got to a place where, okay, we felt like the hospitality mm -hmm. offering was stable. Um, you know, we weren't necessarily where we wanted to be, but we were evolving there. We could see the finish line, whereas before it was so far away, we couldn't even dare to dream it. We felt like the operation was stable enough that, okay, we, we can start really enacting these these the mission statement and these brand tenets and invite some partners to come in and do so with us. Because, you know, one of the tricky things about hospitality in Palm Beach in particular is also one of its biggest blessings. We mm. have a lot of repeat guests. Uh, people come to Palm Beach because they're often tied um, by some sort of generational component. Maybe their grandparent used to go there. Maybe their mother grew up there. Maybe their godmother lives there, whatever it may be. But it often draws them back over and over again. Um, and so one of my challenges, again, as someone who is creative and who builds brands was like, well, that's great. But like, 
how are they going to want to stay with us over and over again? If you come back to Palm Beach, you know, twice a year, every year, you know, why are you not going to want to go try some other hotel or go somewhere down the street or maybe go to West Palm Beach or oh, we're going to stay in Boca this time, do something different. How do we keep it new and different? And so we had the idea of starting to bring in these partners and, um, and doing so in a fashion that we kind of create a slate each season of different partnerships. So while the brand itself is consistent, the physical plant in this space is consistent. It's always going to look the same. The type of hospitality you get when you walk in will always be the same. We will always say welcome home. We will always strive to anticipate your needs. Um, there are certain elements of the hospitality experience that are going to change season over season. Um, and that also like, you know, to lower the veil a little bit, it was also a really creative way to solve some of the problems that we had at the hotel. I mean, honestly, you know, you've stayed with us before. It's a lovely, lovely hotel. I would never put her down, um, but she mm -hmm, has a sure. limited physical footprint. You know, we, it's not a giant space. The rooms are not giant. It's a 1947 build, as you mentioned. So, you know, there are certain challenges we have. We don't have a, we don't have a fitness center, but yet today's travelers want to work out. So how, you know, how do we marry those two? Oh, well, we invite Tracy Anderson to come down and pop with up with us for the season. She doesn't require dedicated space. She just requires mm -hmm. a mat and some mirrors and some music. And so that was a, a way in a evolving fashion for us to fill the need of, wow, today's travelers want fitness, but we can't dedicate space to it. And let's commit season over season to a different person. And so we kind of started looking at all of these disciplines, health and wellness, fitness, the arts, both visual arts and, and music, fashion, and design and decor. And how can we invite different people to come in and participate with us? So again, this, the, the season over season experience evolves, but it also helps solve some of our challenges yeah. operating. Oh, Sarah, I mean, what an amazing, what an amazing experience. And just the way that you bring this together, I think is so incredibly fascinating. I guess if you think back to your public relations experience, is there one clear through line for you? I mean, you talk about brand consistency, but I'm thinking more about the work that you were doing specifically. Is there a through line that connects what you were doing with what you're doing now? Details, 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 details matter. And, you know, I, it's interesting because we do operate a, a, a unique type of hospitality experience in the colony. And, and I would say if you were on the phone with, you know, whatever, the head of the Ritz Carlton, the head of the Four Seasons, the head of Belmont, some other hotel, you know, big, massive chain, they would of course tell you details matter. No one would argue that details matter, but we at the colony take it to a unique level because of the type of hospitality that we offer. And it goes back to Calvin Klein and like the black rubber paper clips. You know, it is that sort of, we pull through the brand all the way through to the matches and the matchbox to the pencil by your bed, to the scent that you get in the lobby, the fact that you're always greeted with welcome home. We talk about ourselves in the pink paradise. We sign all of our emails you know, warm regards from your pink paradise. You know, there's a level of pull through in the brand um, that you often don't see in the hospitality space. You do see it where mm -hmm. in the fashion space. 
and other creative spaces. And that, I think that is what that line of consistency is. It goes back to that training ground at Calvin and Dolce in those early days where it, it was every one of your senses was inundated with this brand on a day in day out basis consistently. And it's that sort of consistent platform for these brands that allows the collection, individual seasonal collections to change year over year. But yet they're couched within this environment of detail that is all 100% consistent. So the message reads through. And that's that's what we've tried to create at the colony. It's all these other details, you know, every one of your senses is inundated by them. And it's so consistent that it does allow our brand partners to evolve and change but our brand message still, you know, yeah. still reads oh, true. I love that. I absolutely love that. I can't wait to get back to the pink paradise. Sarah, thank you <laughs> so much for the time today. I really, really appreciate it. It has been such a pleasure. We can't wait to welcome you back because again, it's it's different year over year. So you'll have to bring your daughter again for another mother daughter weekend. And um, we can't wait to welcome you back. Hey friend, I'd love to know what resonated most with you from this conversation, episode 283 with Sarah Weddenhall. Please be sure to let me know. And if you have an extra minute, I would be so grateful if you would share your thoughts and your feedback with me in a review. Those reviews really help us by signaling to the algorithm that She Said, She Said podcast is something that you value. Plus, I would be incredibly grateful. In the meantime, friend, have a great rest of your week. On behalf of She Said, She Said podcast and the Southern Sea, thanks for joining me this week. Take care, and I'll see you again soon.